Welcome to the State of Everything Extra Tim. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com, joined by Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. Hi, Paul. Hi, Tim. Difficult times at the moment. Uh, I can't tell there's anything going on out there. <laughs> Actually, yeah, I must apologise if you can hear um, construction work in the background because uh, Mark Carney is, is digging a hole in the road uh, en route to the centre of the earth to prepare for his next move in interest rates. <laughs> well, let's talk about that move in interest rates. Yeah, it's a drop in the ocean. Um, I mean, I, I'm, I'm minded to recall something we've talked about before in the podcast, which is how different institutions reacted to the the um, ERM crisis in 1992. So when when the UK started uh, in its doomed campaign, Bank of England in its doomed campaign tried to keep sterling in the ERM, they put rates up and they put rates up again. Yeah. At the time, I needed just started work. So I was working for a Japanese bank. And when the rate, the first rate cut was announced, sorry, rate hike was announced, everyone, oh my God, my mortgage. And then the second hike came, which didn't last terribly long anyway. And everyone was tearing their hair out. Whereas my brother... I was working for a credible institution at the time, and the first the first rate hike was met with sort of silence and sort of raised eyebrows, and the second rate hike was met with outright laughter. Now I would argue that you know if, if I'd been working in a dealing room this morning when that happened at just after seven o'clock, I would probably have burst out laughing as well because I, I just don't think there's any credibility to it. This is a healthcare crisis. This is not a credit or financial crisis. So it clearly is an economic deep freeze. But the idea that I mean, if you're let's say if you're worried about contracting coronavirus or you've got someone who you're worried about contracting coronavirus you know half half a point cut is not going to change anything yeah i i kind of but it but it does look like panic i i yeah i sort of disagree a little bit here because i think that the um i think there were times when they've been cutting interest rates just because main street uh companies have got too much debt and they needed to be bailed out and the banks needed to be bailed out so they've just kept interest rates artificially low but this this is a worldwide or potentially worldwide problem oh it's, uh, no i don't i don't and, disagree with that and uh, i don't i don't necessarily disagree with let's say the the extra measures to like the boost boost uh credit provision boost liquidity all that kind of yeah. stuff i'm just saying is interest rates is a pretty blunt tool yes and they've been low they've been rock bottom low for ages so the idea that I mean, it, it fine, but it, it it now leaves you twenty five basis points away from nothing, exactly. absolute zero. It, exactly, and you know maybe it might have been better better spent. I mean, you know my view, which is I don't think they should be dabbling, tinkering with threats anyway. But yeah. given that we are where we are, yeah, they're they're going to do it. But uh, I, I personally, I would have I would have waited a little while because it's, it's it for me it looks more like a panic measure than a sort of sensible response. Well, yeah, but, but, it, any, it, but you know, but we, we 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 may agree to disagree, but I, either way it's you know we're into la la we've been in la la land for a while now. Well, it's see see what you think of this kind of point of view. I mean, all all I'm saying is that if if there hadn't been if interest rates weren't so low already, then if there was a time to lower rates, this would be it. But mm. because because we've had so much of the same, it's been like, you know, the market's almost becoming deadened to it. And, uh, and immune to it, and therefore its its impact is is a fifty base, basis point rate cut at any other time when when markets are operating inverted commas normally it really bizarre. Well, well, yeah. well, if the markets were operating normally, it would be a massive boost. It would have been a massive boost. It would have been the boost that they were ex- expecting. But if you keep using this same tool all the time, well, it's, it's it, like it, after ten years, the phrase emergency rate cut. No, <laughs> yes, exactly. Tends exactly. to lose some of its allure. Yes. So I guess the, the way forward here is thinking. Well, what are the, what are the next steps? I'm surprised they didn't do a coordinated 
everybody cuts at the same time. Just get on the phone and mm. decide what you want to do. If you want to really do a bit of shock and awe into the market to, to make it go back up and to restore a bit of, of uh, calm, if you like, then just, you know, the, the ECB, the, you know, Bank of England, Bank of Canada and the US should have done it all at once. And, and because they'd kind of done it in bits, it was a bit surprising. But I did say last week that they had to follow suit. Um, and, and so obviously they have, but, uh, I guess it was fairly straight, straightforward and obvious that they would do that. Um, but the question is where now and, and does Sterling keep going down and, um, and, and, you know, does this help? The other question is, I, th I think we touched upon a point that we, so I, I sort of say glibly that I thought that this was the timing of this virus was slightly dubious in, in terms of the trade war and how it just suddenly mm. arrived but just to set the record straight i'm not saying i definitely think it's engineered i just thought it was mm. a little bit strange um that there is there is you know there will be conspiracy theories about whether this has been created i think it's just an, something that would happen if you look into the details of of where livestock is kept close to people in mm. different countries and obviously in china that's they're, they're very in very close proximity that something like this, given um, given that, was was very likely that we would get some sort of virus, and its transmission across the world, given globalization, is also very likely, and so that, and that's what we've got. So the question is, how do we see this thing playing out? What what's the most likely moving parts? To, so I th I think, and we've discussed this, we've touched all this or, on this already. I think the next, the next, but bear in mind this is being recorded just before the announcement of the budget in the UK. Uh, the next, the next move is going to be um, fiscal, and it's going to be fiscal probably around the world. So although yeah. we've got a natural uh, opportunity here with Rishi Sunak to, to sort of bring out the bring out the big guns, it's something that you know that every government. In, in this sense, is it going to do? In this sense, coronavirus is a bit like a kind of get out of jail free card or a kind of spend, spend, spend card because the the bond market vigilantes, which would normally be expected to start, you know, planning riding back into town, will be asked to stay away because this is a kind of force majeure incident. Mm. Um, so, I mean, it, clearly markets are scrambling to try and make sense of what's going on, having been very late to wake up to the impact. They're now to, almost they could almost be accused of overreacting. But I'm not even sure that they are now. Um, I mean, it seems. I think there's firstly two ways to look at the, the, let's say, the market evolution of this. One is, are you a trader? Which I'm not. But but you know, I, I dare say from your perspective, you're closer to being a sort of like a pure trader. And I'm not saying that's a criticism; it's just an no. observation. Yeah, yeah. Whereas from my perspective, I'm looking at it more from a perspective of a longer-term investor. Yeah. So from a longer-term investor's perspective, we're not really doing much except rotating out of cyclical industrial stocks into precious metal related ones be, be precisely because we're trying to look through the short-term noise and see what's the likely next step uh and one of those likely next steps i think almost certain now is is say fiscal splurge you know mm. across the world which will quite possibly quite probably have inflationary impacts so if you think that currency is going to get you know further printed to destruction effectively, then you own the likes of gold and silver and miners, as opposed to say industrial miners. Yes. So I'm just drawing the distinction between an industrial you know provider of you know platinum or I mean platinum's a rare metal anyway, but it's a rare precious metal. But I'm saying more like I'd rather own a gold miner than a copper miner, for example. Right, right. So yeah, so next steps with how this might you know pan out. I I think looking at the silver lining of of 
of this is, yeah, I'm not saying this is a nice virus, but it's mm. better than a virus that could potentially kill all, all sort of age groups and could be far worse. And so if this is a kind of dress rehearsal for what we would do if another one was discovered, mm. if if nothing else, it's made everybody kind of ready to react quite quickly to something like that, you know? Yeah, so, I think I, I think we could probably agree that the UK hasn't, the UK government hasn't been exactly ahead of this thing in the way that, say, uh, other countries have, yeah. possibly Italy and certainly China. And then, of course, you get into the realm of political stuff and, and sort of social, cultural stuff, because China was able to take draconian measures because it's a communist command economy, yes. whereas the kind of measures that they've done wouldn't have been palatable in the UK. But I dare say now, given in the light of what's happened in Italy, that it would probably be slightly more acceptable now, namely, guys, you're on lockdown. Yeah. And I'm, I'm minded to recall when I was a student, I read um, a quite, a, quite a sort of harrowing account of the, the plague, which is Daniel Defoe's uh, Journal of the Plague Year, which, if I recall correctly, is, is attributed to being one of the first English novels. And although Defoe didn't write it at the time, because it was cobbled together, I believe, from notes left by a relative, possibly an uncle, because I'm not sure Defoe had even been born in 1665. It's done with such a sense of, you know, verisimilitude that it, it feels like a real, a real sort of first-hand account, a bit like Pepys's diary of the, of the Great Fire. And the reality back then, and not, not much has changed, is basically if you were found to have plague, then you were basically locked in your own home along with the rest of your family. And that was basically a death sentence. So we haven't really come that far because all we're being told now is to self-isolate. Yeah. And, um, you know, so there's, there's, the, basically there are, all I think this is showing is that there are real limits to what happens when a, when a virus goes, goes global. That, you know, you're, you're, you're only as strong as your weakest link, and we know there's plenty of weak links out there. I was thinking through about the measures that we've taken and whether they were enough, and I, I suggested early on that they they should have shut the schools. And uh, you, you, you said that. I mean, there's, there's one thing I'd, I'd recommend on that front. Um, there's a, if you haven't seen it yet, there's an excellent chat between Scott Adams, the cartoon, the Dilbert cartoonist, and Naval Ravikant, who I'm sure we've mm. uh, highlighted before on the show. Yeah. And it's a chat, I think, from the 5th of March, and they're just discussing the impact of coronavirus in a very calm, detached, measured, objective, down-to-earth way. And as I think Naval makes the point, let, let's be realistic. If you look at what the schools really are, the schools, the, the school system is basically glorified health, uh, glorified daycare. And yeah. so if you close the schools, you then have an extra problem, which is, firstly, these children may well be more dangerous uh, as a cohort population than anybody else, because they, they, you know, they're likely to be largely invulnerable, but they might yet be super spreaders. So you bring the kids out of school, put them in the house, they, and then infect everybody in the home. So Well, they're going to do that anyway. Then, yes, for, for sure, they might. But the other issue is that um, if you take the kids out of schools, then parents who would otherwise be working are then obligated to come home and, and look after them. So it's another kind of another thing that throws the economy into the deep freeze. Yes, but I was thinking about this and, and I thought it was a very good argument that I think Hugh Fowler said on Twitter when, when he first mm. put it out, but giving it, giving it further thought. Um, there are also... There are also kids that get their their best shot at a, a hot meal at school yes, rather than yes. at home there is that but look if if we're talking about a virus that um is going to cripple the medical systems mm. it's much and 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 this is a compounding problem so for example if you're trying to deal if you if you're looking at the death rate of of something like this then it's the death rate because your healthcare system can cope 
But if you push it over to the edge where it can't cope, the death rate's going to go up much faster and you're going to have a much bigger problem. So yeah. those health workers, those doctors, nurses and everyone else who may end up getting the virus could then will then be out of the system and you can't suddenly build another hospital or train somebody sure. at very short notice. But, sure. in a, but in a crisis, you can provide health care quickly. You know, people will rally round. Well, it's about and, rationing and, and it's about and, triage. And, 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 I'm not say, and I'm not saying that that's necessarily easy, but... You know, people can work from, you know, will be able to work from home, will adjust. Mm. That's a much easier, Not. I'm not saying it's easy, but it's a much mm. easier adjustment than having, you know, our our medical systems overwhelmed. Yeah, and sure. I mean, I think, I think, to be fair, Naval Ravikant makes exactly that point, which is his, his and again, he's not alarmist about this. Obviously, it's very easy to, to go that that route, but he's not alarmist. He says, look, what the long, longer term impact of this is likely to be that what people were starting to do anyway, those trends will simply accelerate. So, for example, for what it's worth, I've been working remotely for the last three years anyway, because yeah. in the job that I do and the job that we do, it's possible to do that from home. It's possible to do that if you've got a broadband connection and decent, you know, kit, you know, technology kit and all the rest. In fact, I mean, it reminds me, there's a, a guy I used to work with, Sean Park, when we used to work together at um, Parabar in the 90s. And Sean's now a sort of IT investor, a sort of VC type investor. And he put on a seminar back, probably getting on for 10 years ago now. But I remember it was a seminar in the, in the city about you know, investing in new technology and, and all the rest. And he said, sort of pop, straw, straw poll at the top of the, top of the event. He said, how many people in the audience have got better IT in their home than they do in the office? And nearly every hand went up. And that's kind of where we got to now that, you know, it used to be the case that if you wanted the best gear and all the rest of it, you needed to work for a big bank or an investment bank. Mm. Now, I dare say, if it's not gone exactly 180 degrees, it's a much more level playing field. I don't feel at all uh, disenfranchised working from home than I do would do working for an organisation that was, you know, giving me PC support. I feel, you know, I've got just as much access to the rest of the world as I had in my previous life. Well, so more, more that's so because that's, that's a great leveler. More so because of the firewalls. I, I remember in the mid '90s when the internet was was you know in its infancy, you know, as far as the broad population is concerned, making a prediction that you might see people working outside of big cities and moving out mm. because they could work that way, which was obviously yeah. clearly wrong. But it, to me, that for people who could work anywhere they would why would they want to be in big cities but, but there but is actually, a whole actually, there is a whole is... compliance argument to sort of working in large organizations so a, a, a completely trivial example so i used to work with some i used to do business with some guys that are coming at a stockbroker called pamuel gordon and when the in the in the dawn of the internet sort of mid 90s i remember one of the guys that i used to speak to there saying well their their it department had, had basically because they were concerned about people accessing porn They'd blocked all these sites, and their the, the sort of somewhat crude mechanism for dealing with this was if they found a load of pink on the screen that was deemed to be porn, and so all those sites were blocked. And so, of course, all the stuff then went went off and downloaded pictures of pigs and, and crashed the system. Oh my god, that's racist! <laughs> but 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 these days it'd be like, oh, you're not allowed to tweet that, or you're not allowed to post this or that. And so the reality is that that if the if the tech was any better, the 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 sort of draconian. I, IT department not invented here, you know, no, no free speech allowed. Compliance regime will will squash whatever whatever other advantages might be out there. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, AI AI technology's got much better, hasn't it? So they can they can pick this stuff up much better. And, and... But to go back to, to go back to the original point, yeah, yeah. Naval was basically saying that in, in the in the bigger picture, these these trends 
in other words, the, the the impact of coronavirus might might yet be far more profound than you might think. Because let's say, for the sake of argument, the 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 advertisement I would make, the invitation I would make to anybody would be, you know, come on in into the remote economy because the water's lovely. Yes, I, you know, I, if, you, I, if you if you can deal with it culturally, because I mean, I remember doing this. My, I had my first experience of sort of you know dot com type startups back in 1999 2000 and i was working then in an office on my own that was very very lonely but doing it in from the home given the way things technology and everything else has evolved um you know we've we've been able to adapt to it and now i wouldn't i wouldn't go i wouldn't want to go back so i i tend to work from home in a, in a domestic office but clearly there is no there is no uh, way of substituting real-world contact. So, for example, when we've got clients or prospective clients that want to meet face-to-face, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll clearly do that. But absent that requirement, uh, I, I would argue that once you've adapted to it, because obviously there's tons of distractions too, once you've adapted Twitter. to it, well, yeah, not least Twitter, I mean, it's, it's the greatest time sink of all time. But once you've ad- adjusted to it, working from home is easily as productive as working from work. And I, I, this is a bigger point then, because then you think, well, why is business configured the way it is in, say, the service sector where you've got a big open plan room and that Mr. Big basically gets to monitor his staff? I think it's because management don't trust their staff, and nor should they because most people are just downloading kitten videos all day. So, you know, you have to ask how productive traditional, business, traditional businesses are now relative to what the potential for people doing slightly more grown-up remote work. Yeah, I, I guess it's giving them targets of work rather than if they want to download a kitten video, who cares as long as they get their other work done. That's how I Cause see I feel it. Because there's, there's, there's a line that, that Naval Ravikant uses in the podcast, and I had to look it up because I wasn't aware, I wasn't certain what the phrase meant, but he said basically most sort of, he says something like most modern businesses LARPing around, and I thought, I wonder what that is. And I think it's like live action role play. In other words, people are pretending yeah. to be doing work, but they're mm. not actually doing any work. Well, they're just they're pretending. There's a lot of evidence to say that if you cut people's hours they they become more productive because they feel like they've got to do the nine to five so there's a lot of padding in that but if you say look when you finish your work just go home they get on with it and then fine you go home at two o'clock great go and go enjoy your day and go and enjoy your family and 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 there's and there's also a financial world aspect to that because i remember working in dealing rooms and i was a, a salesman but i remember looking at the traders and thinking about how the traders day was and it struck me fairly early on that it is absurd to keep these guys bottled in. They are mostly guys. To keep these guys bottled in between, say, half seven and five, because there aren't actually that many actionable good ideas during the course of a day. So, in other words, if you've if you've met your say your your P and L target, then just hit the beach. Mm. You know, the idea that people should be forced to sort of stare at Bloomberg screens and watch prices whizzing around is just I think it's really ultimately counterproductive because there aren't that many good ideas. Doesn't that come from the industrial age when when the Industrial Revolution, when you basically had to be at a machine all yeah, day long. Yeah, exactly. It's, well, it's kind of like that. And we, I, the, 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 I saw a great YouTube video um, by the guy who did the We Are The Last Humans that I recommended. Oh, I remember that yeah. one. That's excellent. Yeah. And he did a brilliant one on education that I kept forgetting to recommend, but it, it was fantastic. And he was explaining how the school education system is based on training people to work in factories so you've got a bell that goes off at each time and everyone gets up and goes off and yeah. you know moves to the next lesson and, and everything's sure, structured in that way where i'm you have sure to, that's you... right so there's i mean there's this is cracking quote um that we have cave brains or lizard brains if you prefer we have cave brains 
medieval institutions and godlike technology. And yeah. that's really kind of the problem with humanity, that we've got all these different things, but the stuff that we've actually got at our fingertips, we're like sort of chimps with Kalashnikovs. Yeah. You know, we just haven't worked out how to use them yet. And I think that point about medieval institutions, because we've also got medieval attitudes towards, yeah, as you say, things like education and and and, and business. My my take on this, I think, and this is not my idea, I've read it from somebody else, is that the the educational system, and particularly the higher educational system in this country, was basically configured to populate the British Empire with bureaucrats and accountants. Mm. It's completely unfit for purpose in 2020. Yes, things have changed so so quickly. So what's so, your... so 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 some some of it's changed, but you know the vast the vast majority of the herd and you know traditional businesses is stuck about 150 years ago. So do you think there's at, at times like this when we've had like the 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 bubble's been pricked, right? Yeah. Is there any way they can get it into a new high? Is this a big buying opportunity for certain? markets or is this going to turn into a big bear market and 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 to be honest i i'm not sure of the answer at this point yeah uh, no, me neither and 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 it's always worth saying that the 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 three words you will never hear from any financial advisor talking head or fund manager are i don't know but in this case i don't know yeah. my gut feel though and again this comes back to whether you're looking at it from a trading perspective or an investing perspective my gut feel is that this this probably has some ways yet to to pan out. So, mm. it, it, in terms of anybody asking the question from a you know a, oh my god I'm losing money or you know or my pension is losing money or whatever it, it it's 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 a partly contextual uh, contextual um, uh, experience. It, you know, if you're asking the question, it kind of depends what you own in the first place and why you own it. Mm. So, if you've got a diversified multi-asset portfolio. Frankly, I don't see much 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 point in panicking now. You might want to trim uh, equity, certain equity exposure, because there are clearly going to be some sectors that are going to be far more vulnerable even from now than others. So, for example, if your portfolio was chock full of airlines, retailers, cruise line companies, then the chances are you've got a fair more bit of pain ahead of you. However, if you've got a, a much more diversified and let's say less cyclical um, portfolio particularly if these stocks were cheap and they're not going to have their revenues hugely impacted by a sort of global slowdown i can't really see the point in just saying okay well where are you going to go cash they're probably going to take rates negative in the uk now uh bonds no thank you because we're looking through to that say ultimately potentially very inflationarily messy uh um, fiscal response so there aren't that many places there aren't that many obvious places to put your money right now but i'd argue that if you take the long view then you know the stock market will ultimately recover, albeit it may stabilise quite a bit lower than where it is now. But the point is that leads to a second order problem, um, and I write about this in the commentary this week, and I've made the same point loads of times. the The secular opportunity to go long equities of our generation was in March two thousand and nine. So everyone goes, "Oh, if you bought the market then, you'd have made out like a bandit." Well, that's true. But I can tell you from first-hand experience that if you were managing money in March 2009, it felt like the world was going to end. So, <laughs> did it. I mean, so it's it really easier did. said than done, saying, oh, yeah, just just buy the low. Well, yeah, but buying the low basically gets you fired. Well, it feels like this, doesn't it? It feels, it feels like, like this. Exactly. And, you know, so there are all, well, are all these old, you know, exp hoary old expressions come to the fore, like, don't catch a falling knife. Well, we're being surrounded by falling knives at the moment. Yes. So... Uh, but again, I revert to the earlier answer. I just don't know. Yeah. As a trading uh, perspective, I'll leave that to the trend followers because uh, this is too tricky for me. 
And you see this you know, uh, wild volatility in markets like oil. I, I wouldn't know where to start, but as, again, I defer that to, to, the, to the professionals. But in terms of taking the investment outlook in the bigger picture, I'm minded to recall that line from Charlie Munger when he said, you know, he was interviewed in the, 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 the uh, tail end of the crisis by BBC. This is, you know, Warren Buffett's right-hand man, one of the richest people in the world and one of the most intelligent people in the world. And they said, well, Berkshire Hathaway's share price is off again. Uh, are, you, are you freaked out about it? And he said, no, not at all. This is the third time in my life that, that Berkshire Hathaway stock has fallen top tick to bottom tick by 50%. If you're unable to cope with the vicissitudes of the market, you deserve to get the mediocre returns you're going to get by not participating in the market. Now, that is a very hard, that's, that's an, an ironclad, really hard-nosed thing to say to clients. So I'd never say that to clients or prospective clients. But the reality is he's right. If you, in other words, if you're panicked out, if you're bullied out, if you allow yourself to be bullied out of otherwise completely sane, sensible, uh, perfectly fairly valued things, because you, you, you can't stand the volatility, then wake up to the kind of lousy returns you're going to get by not participating. So I say for us, the path of least resistance is firstly only to earn what we consider value anyway. So in other words, we haven't consciously overpaid. Clearly, if the underlying company's revenue start to deteriorate, then we have to rethink what we own. But provided that doesn't happen to any major degree, that's not, not a disaster. And then we supplement that with things that hopefully will um, convey an element of portfolio insurance, not least systematic trend followers, because they're uncorrelated to the stock market anyway, and frankly, a bucket load of gold, because, you know, of, the, of all the things that we own right now, um, gold is gold and gold related things are the ones that, that probably give me most cause for, let's say, comfort when I try and sleep at night, because I think we know what the playbook is, they're going to print their way out of this, or attempt to. And in the process, I think gold goes way higher. I thought it was interesting that, uh, oh, by the way, I, te- I agree technically on gold. It's uh, it's really looking like it wants to burst up again. So that trend is is. But for me, that's not. That's not for me. That sorry to interrupt, but for me, that's not just a trading perspective. It's also a longer term one because I think. Of course, it is. Know, yeah, they are. Um, they are going to print and print and print and spend and spend and spend. So, yes. Yes. You know, in other words, that you ain't seen nothing yet. Yes, I mean. You know, we've we've got time to watch it unfold as well. So yes, it's it's great having a long term view, but we can, like for example, silver doesn't look quite as bullish as gold. So I don't know whether it's going to catch I, up I, I or think, what. And, and if you look to me, at, I if, think of silver as like a coiled spring, though. I mean, I can't believe how comparatively cheap silver is. So I'm not not at all phased by owning silver. But if you look at palladium, it was it's been on a t- an absolute tear. So if gold does if gold does what palladium's done, just get ready for like three thousand mm. plus. You know, mm. so. Uh, but it hasn't accelerated like that. But it's uh, it's setting itself up. I'd, to, I'd to, much to, rather have a long, steadier bull market, to be honest, because these these sort of the, these completely parabolic moves they tend to be short lived. Yeah, well, it de- it depends. You know, yes, I know what you mean. It's like they they go up like a rocket and explode, yeah, and that's it. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, but there's there's still plenty of ground it can cover while it's doing that. So I w- I wouldn't necessarily say that's a bad thing, but. The other point I'd make is about oil. You know, the the, the drop this week was attributed to the, the the price of oil collapsing, which so that, that, which that ought it, to be a sorry, good thing. Yeah, it ought to be a good thing for the rest. Exactly, of the exactly, exactly what I was going to say. So you know, it reminded me of two thousand and seven when interest rates were at five percent, and uh, were they at five percent? I think they might have been higher than that. But the, but any yeah, I think they were. They were over five percent, and. 
oil's oil was hitting like 147 it was on its way up to its its massive high and the bank of england was saying oh you know what inflation numbers look really bad we should keep interest rates high and it's like you know it's <laughs> that that's adding extra baggage to something that's already overburdened you know the fact that oil prices are high is not because people are going out and and spending loads of money and the economy's working really well it it was a a exogenous shock that was pushing it higher and it's the same here that this this collapse in oil price is great for every everybody because that makes you know it it makes everything cheaper it makes travel cheaper it makes um you know producing goods cheaper in every single way but the market takes it as a negative and it's also sold just everything it's just sort of a shut your eyes and sell the market which shows you that it is it is pure panic at the moment and trying to look beyond that um i think you're absolutely right oil going down should be a positive so what what i'm saying for this is it's really difficult to work out um of course whether this is where this where this buying opportunity is going to come in and I think that you're right. If I had to err on the side of caution, I think we've got a bit more downside before before we hit that. But you can see that there's definitely a disparity between how the market's reacting when it's reacting negatively to something like an oil price drop. Mm. I mean, you might say that it's it's a factor of less production, but oil is something that we will always need and we can't just suddenly stop relying on it. So the fact that it's suddenly become cheaper for whatever reason... It is a boost. It's a, it's like an interest, a global interest rate cut. It's how I see it. Mm. Yeah. No. I mean, again, so, but it just goes to show that it, it, when when things hit the fan, you know, r- rationality just goes out the window. Absolutely. Any any take on politics you want to talk about? So obviously we're wait, we're waiting for what Rishi Sunak is going to do, and I suspect that the, the, we're going to see the first sight of those famous monetary helicopters, uh, or perhaps fiscal helicopters, I should say now, because we've already had the rate cut. Um, but we're clearly going to be in stimulus mode. Like I say, I think the, the coronavirus does give all, basically all governments uh, a get-out-of-jail-free card to, to spend like, like drunken sailors. So I think mm. that's, that's going to happen. You know, like, so if you thought austerity was dead before, we'll get a load of how it's going to be dead and buried after you know, the, the months to come. Um, I suppose what's happening in the States is interesting that, that Creepy Joe looks like he's in the ascendancy, which, and that's another back-from-the-dead uh, scenario, which is weird. Uh, you, you kind of get the feeling that uh, perhaps what the US markets are now pricing in, are starting to price in, to, or to attempt to price in, is a little bit like what the FTSE had to try and price in in the run-up to the election, namely the risk of a Corbyn government. Because it, you get the sense, I certainly get the sense, that the, the prospects of a, up until recently, that a Trump re-election looked like a done deal. And now, because some would argue that they've badly mishandled you know, the coronavirus outbreak, uh, maybe, and, and obviously there will be a market impact and an economic impact that maybe a Trump, a Trump re-election is no longer the shoe in that it once was. So, yeah, do, would I really want uh, Creepy Joe? Or I mean, I, I try not to get into the politics because it alienates people, but uh, put it this way, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want Creepy Joe as my president any more than, um, much more than Bernie Sanders. Right, so that's something we can, we can, and so that, so that, yeah. in other words, if the if the U.S. market is oscillating, it might also be oscillating for 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 that reason as well as just the yes. you know the, the headline economic you know anticipation of what's to come. Great. Well, we got a question from uh, at Clown Fishy on Twitter, um, who said, uh, "Can can you provide your view as to why the euro does not seem to weaken as much as other currencies? EU economies growth uh, is poor. The ECB are printing money, but the currency does not seem to weaken." Um, 
I, I, can't, I can't explain it, but I say so I'm, I'm really not the currency guy. So, I mean, maybe you have a view on this, Paul. Well, the euro could be used as a funding currency. And what that basically means is that when if you think a currency is going to be weak, you borrow in it. And in order to buy... To buy, uh, say, US dollar denominated assets as opposed to euro one. Well, yeah, you could buy South American bonds yeah. with it because you're expecting it to go down and your interest rates are expected to be low. But there's so many to choose from. I don't know what gets classed as a funding currency. But the net effect of that is that when the market starts to turn, then you've got to liquidate those positions. So if you're short euros, you have to buy them, and that's what can prop them up. So potentially that's what's going on. Now, I think what's going to undermine that that situation would be the bond markets of the respective European countries uh, currency current countries um you know bonds basically so that if if like italian bonds are wobbling and if that continues and other bonds start to turn down then the euro i think will be in more trouble now during the major the, the big financial crisis of before current countries that were on their own seemed to be more uh vulnerable so a big nation um, as one might be seen as 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 initially more kind of like safe, if you like, than an individual country, mm. but it doesn't necessarily work like that always. So if if the market starts to smell a bit of blood and a breakup of the euro, then all hell will break loose. So that's possibly why a bigger a bigger block of countries is normally seen as safer than something that that's on its own. So you you can get hit because you're you're on the periphery, but it. But that doesn't. That was how how the market saw that last time. So I'm not sure at this point how the market is viewing um, this inverted commas crisis. Um, but it, but what I can say that it, that funding does come into it, and and also I think it it will reverse. Ultimately, it will reverse. So euro dollar was going up because the US were going to cut rates, people could see that that was going to be the first thing that was happening. But I, I don't think it's going to, it might go up a bit further, but I don't, I think it will stabilise and come back down again as as everybody wants a weaker currency and as everybody wants lower rates. So, mm. you know, it will hurt them to have the euro stronger as well. So they don't want it and it has it has a kind of circular effect on them, if you like. If the euro stays too strong, then they can't, um, you know, inflate their way out of it. So it, it, it then weakens their economies faster. So then the euro then turns down because the long longer term prospects of interest rates going up are reduced. So it's it kind of it takes a little bit of a while for the market to work out that circle. But that's that's how it would be in my view. I think uh, also the uh, the the coronavirus uh, pandemic, because that's surely what it is, um, may yet do what the global financial crisis didn't do, which is, you know, as you sort of alluded, break up the Eurozone. Um, so the uh, that's obviously a, a contentious perspective or a suggestion, um, but I, I'm minded to cite something that I read in the Telegraph from Ambrose Evans Pritchard, who's one of the my favourite columnists, and you could argue that he maybe has a, has a risk of overstating his case, but he, he writes very, very well. And so you'll, you'll get the gist of this article if I just read you the headline, that, you know, the title, which is, this is from the 8th of March, so that's uh, three days ago. Complacent governments will be torn to shreds as a coronavirus quake reshapes the global order. Now, that's obviously a sort of suggestion rather than a statement, but he says it as, a, as an outright prediction. But there may well yet be something to that, that I think when the dust finally settles, um, 
there will be that you know history will will treat uh, governments differently, and I think you know poor old Italy is sort of bearing the brunt of it at the moment, but that they, I think they look progressive by comparison to what the UK and the US have done. Yeah. So the other part of the question is basically what happens next. It's saying we're... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, is, again, is... I'll, let you, I'll let you do oh, that. Oh, thanks, Tim. Um, no, I, I think we should have a crack at it, but but we'll have a crack at it next week because... Well, uh, no, let's, let's have a very, very quick crack at it. So okay, the way I let, let, let me just read the question out then. Yeah. So now, now we seem to be entering a period where asset bubbles pop. Can you provide your crystal ball view on what happens next? For example, if markets, property, currencies, et cetera, et cetera, drop, what does history and your experience tell us as what happens to the average person entering a depression and then poss- a possible hyperinflation environment? So I, mean, I don't think there's... I'm not convinced there's anything, certainly in, in our lifetimes, that quite compares with this. Um, plausibly, you, you'd maybe go back to the 30s. But I mean, that's that's like a sort of de- a, a decade-long deflationary depression that was lifted out of depression by a world war. Um, you could argue, I, th- I think you could make a fair case for the economic impact of coronavirus being a little akin to a war to the extent that it, it forces governments onto a war footing in terms of how they behave. Ooh, so, point. in other words, uh, there's there's a line that I've used in the commentary, and I'll probably use it again. And it's a very famous one, anyway. It's a quote from a extensive quote from John Maynard Keynes when he talks about how life used to be like for the gentlemen of means in what would it be Edwardian England just before the outbreak of the First World War. And he he writes more beautifully than I can remember. But he he basically says, you know, the man of means could, you know, from his bed bedchamber could just use his telephone and summon up goods from anywhere in the world with a you know reasonable expectation they'd be delivered promptly and all the rest of it. So it's basically like saying, guys, this is what it used to be like in 1914. It was like, you know, basically like 2020 and everyone had Amazon or at least the people with means had Amazon and you could order goods and services and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then the war changed all of that. And if the First World War didn't quite kill it off, and kill off sort of British British economic prospects for several generations, and the Second World War definitely did. And it's interesting. So I think that the, the I'm not trying to be alarmist by talking about a world war. I'm just saying that the 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 natural policy response of of governments and democratic governments visa versus say you know communist command economy governments, and they don't necessarily act in the same ways. So that's worth bearing in mind. But there was a golden age, and the First World War killed it off. Well, we've been living with at least for people of capital, for people with means, they've had enjoyed a comparable golden age. And so my question would be, possibly that golden age came to an end uh, in, at the start of 2020 when this virus took off globally. So all the stuff that people have benefited from and businesses have benefited from and investors have benefited from for 20, 30 years, including the rise of China, maybe some of these things go quite dramatically into reverse. I don't think that's unreasonable as a, as a prospect at all. Yeah. And then what? So deflation then, then. So I so I think the playbook is much, or the, the 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 evolution of this is much clearer now. I may be wrong, but I'm again I'm sort of singing from the Russell Napier uh, hymn sheet, which is for 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 several years, really since the the global financial crisis, everyone's been trying to work out, investors have been trying to work out what's the order of this. Do we get inflation? Do we get deflation? How? Why? And I think the answer is so much, so much clearer now. Well, the, the the jury's in. We're getting deflation. We're living through it now. We are basically, if you had GDP uh, expectations or GDP forecasts for any country or the world at the start of the year, you can throw them in the bin because they're completely irrelevant now because um, everything is going to go through a deflationary shock, supply shock, demand shock. 
So that's that's you know I do not underestimate how that can nibble away at, at, at markets. But I think then the the what makes it more even more interesting is I think governments aren't stupid. They're mostly stupid, or they're very stupid, but they're not completely stupid. So they realize they want to get these politicians want to get reelected. So you will see a response to that. And I think the response is going to be as as stated. It's not just monetary because monetary policy is pretty much run into the sand now. It's going to be fiscal. These guys have now got to effectively get out of jail card, uh, get out of jail free card. But it's not going to be free because everyone's going to end up paying the price. Nevertheless, you're going to see that. So I think the difficulty for investors is seeing through the noise around the global deep freeze, chilling of the economy, and through to what impact this this fiscal stimulus, if it comes, which I'm sure it will, is going to have on markets as well. So perversely, although everyone is, or the media is probably now mostly fretting about the impact on stock market, which is going up and down like you know someone in cardiac arrest. The, the actually, I think the bigger problem here is anyone flooding into bonds right now might be committing the cardinal sin of all sins, because if you're buying bonds on a ne- already negative yield, get a load of what hyperinflation might do to your bond portfolio. Interesting. Answer that and stay fashionable. <laughs> <laughs> I think we we've got to continue this topic. Onto next week's um, extra Tim because there's indeed a lot, there's a lot to indeed cover. there's a lot there's a lot to chew over. Yes, absolutely. But thank you so much for your question. And if there are any others, please let us know. That's absolutely fantastic. Thank you, Tim. Thanks for thank your time. You, Thanks for your thoughts as always. We'll be back. We'll be back. And stay safe out there. See you next time. Cheerio. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.